Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today with a very special returning guest, fan favorite, Nikhil Krishnan. Uh, Nikhil is the founder of Out of Pocket. Nikhil, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Eric. If, I, if I'm a fan favorite, your, own, your only listeners must be my parents, because uh, <laughs> I don't think any of the fans are requesting this. <laughs> uh, exactly. I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> I just have to... um, exactly. Okay. Nikhil is back. Uh, you, you've, since you've been here o- o- over a year ago, you found it Out of Pocket. What, why don't you introduce us to what is Out of Pocket and, and what are your goals and aspirations for it? Yeah, sure. So uh, Out of Pocket is basically, uh, for me, it's the intersection of healthcare and comedy. And really what I'm trying to do is make it easier for people to understand how the business of healthcare works. So that sort of has taken on a few different forms. So I write a newsletter at outofpocket.health. I'll be uh, releasing a paid version of the newsletter soon. And I'll be, I'm working on uh, crash courses on the industry. So intensives on how things like a clinical trial works or how a uh, insurance claim gets processed, et cetera. And then also um, actually coming out with kind of random uh, novelty products that explain how healthcare works. So I wrote a children's book about how clinical trials work. I am working on something exciting, which is TBD uh, that, that hopefully will come out in the next month, but I don't want to, I don't want to spoil too much, but, but basically more, more things to kind of get people uh, familiar with how healthcare works and, just sort of excited to potentially come work in the space and, and fix some of the problems that exist. I think healthcare is just sort of notoriously confusing and opaque for a lot of people. And I don't think it has to be. And I'm trying to work to make that more accessible. I'm personally, as a fan, I'm just excited for the mixtape to come out. Oh, you have no idea. You know, it's called prior alts and, and denials or, or something like that. <laughs> I'm trying to think of that. I'll think of the name. <laughs> love it. Love it. So I, I want to go through some of the 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 topics today you've gone through and really just around a variety of different topics in healthcare as, you, as you've approached it from an analyst from an operator in the space from an investor now now in the space you having your own your own investing practice the, the first one I want to get into is employer based healthcare uh, you sort of did, did this deep dive uh, even just sort of on the history of of how it became employer based to to begin with and sort of the challenges that have that have come from that and potential uh, changes we could potentially potentially make. Why don't you give some of the historical historical background? Sure. Yeah. So for those that don't know, uh, the U.S. is actually one of the only developed countries in the world that has employers pick your healthcare plans for you. It's like a very unique thing. You know, America is unique in so many different ways, and this is like one of the worst ways. Uh, but, but basically, in after World War II, in order to stop wage inflation, um, they basically the government basically prevented companies from raising wages past a certain point, but basically said, "Hey, listen, you can't raise wages, but you can give other benefits uh, if you want to to basically um, you know better compensate employees." And so at the time, you know, healthcare was not a very expensive. Uh, getting healthcare services was very expensive, so it was one of those things that you know companies basically offer to offer to um, you know their employees. Uh, but then what happened was basically because they couldn't raise wages, a lot of these companies said, hey, why don't we just give more better health benefits? And this is compounded by the fact that 
also around the same time, uh, the government basically decided that uh, employers could essentially uh, put pre-tax dollars towards towards those health insurance premiums. Again, like this shouldn't have been a huge deal because at the time health services were not expensive. You know, this was sort of like a rounding error for most businesses, et cetera. But that basically exploded this entire industry of uh, employer-sponsored healthcare where your employer picks the health plan that they think the employee should have. They can route uh, pre-tax dollars into that health plan. And people basically now depend on their employers to get their health benefits. And, and I think right now you really see the glaring flaws in that problem where millions and millions of people who are now, you know, furloughed or, or, uh, or getting fired from their jobs or having to close down, uh, simply just don't have, you know, good health insurance anymore. I mean, even for me personally, like when I left my job, I had the option of basically continuing my employer healthcare coverage through something called Cobra. Uh, and what that means is you could have the same plan, but you'd have to basically uh, make up the portion of your of the spend that your employer was covering for you when you were working there, and you know that was like seventy five, eighty percent of the of the dollars. I'm like, yo, whoa, I am, I cannot pay like six hundred, seven hundred dollars a month for this plan. That's wild. I'm lucky because I'm under thirty, so you can get something called catastrophic health care, which is a catastrophic health insurance coverage, which is relatively cheap. But like, if I was trying to start a business and I had to you know, pay those health insurance premiums after I left, like, there's just no way, like, that would have been a huge problem. Talk about why it's, um, w- what changes you, you wish could could happen here, um, in the re- regulatory perspective, and, and why, why they've been so hard to change? There are like a lot of different ways you can think about decoupling this. And, it, and, you know, both uh, political parties should actually be on board with changing this, because it's both ruining any sort of free market semblance, and also, making things extremely expensive. Uh, you know, there's a few ways you can approach this. There, there's some stopgap measures. So if, if anyone ever remembers, there was this thing called the Cadillac tax, which is part of the Affordable Care Act, which was basically saying, hey, if you offer too lavish of health benefits to employees, we're basically going to tax you, you know, above a certain amount. Uh, that sort of never really got anywhere. Um, so, so that's kind of been killed. I think maybe it's getting pushed out. I'm not actually totally sure. Um, another way to change this, which you know, there are some there are some developments here, and and I think OnDeck is actually working with a company called Savvy, which is which is doing uh, some of this. So it'd be interesting to hear kind of how you're working together. But but there's this something called ICRA's I C H R A, which basically allow employers to give those tax benefited dollars to employees directly, so that they can go and shop for their own health insurance themselves as opposed to the employer uh, picking health insurance plans for them. And, and what that does is basically say like, hey, listen, uh, employee, you take the money and you basically pick a plan on the individual market that you think makes the most sense for you. Um, because then if an employee changes to a different job or something, whatever, they can you know, potentially still pick that same plan later um, and stick with it. So now insurers actually become a little bit more competitive trying to make sure you actually stay on their plan as you jump from uh, job to job. So, so, you know, those are some things that have sort of been proposed. There are, there are other versions of this, which are like, Hey, what if we have a public option uh, insurance plan on the individual exchanges so that if I'm at a job now I can look at the health insurance plans that my employer offers versus maybe something uh, cheaper, affordable on the individual exchanges and then actually compare which one makes the most sense. 
you know, the, the, and, and, you know, the most extreme version would be like, what if we just had Medicare for all and, and we just didn't have any employers involvement at all. So, so there are different, you know, there are different proposals on how to fix this. Uh, I, I just think one of them needs to go forward. I think the problem is everything gets kind of stuck in gridlock once it's proposed. I mean, as you can imagine, large employers don't exactly want to give up these lavish health benefits because it's a great way to attract and retain employees and and stay competitive in the labor marketplace. But you know, societally, I think it's it's really messing things up. So I think we I think we really have to change things. Yeah, and and you made some comparisons to England in the piece, but why don't you talk a little bit about just sort of to the extent that you've studied international health systems and what the sort of different approaches or different strategies are or, or different learnings that, that we could potentially, or lessons that we could potentially take from them. Yeah, totally. Uh, so, you know, I'm not, I'm definitely not an expert in international healthcare by any means. So I take everything I say with a grain of salt, but you know, you can look at the UK and the, the NHS that they have. A lot of people like to compare Singapore, et cetera. Uh, you know, there, there are a few things that are probably just worth noting. Um, one of the things that the U S sort of lacks that I think a lot of other countries has, we don't have a great, you know, publicly run healthcare, uh, healthcare system. So all of the hospitals, you know, all the care providers, et cetera, are in some capacity part of uh, the private sector or, you know, they're nonprofits, but like, you know, nonprofits question mark, which we can go into if you want. But, you know, a lot of these other countries have government run health systems, which makes it way easier basically to, to have a public, you know, both a public health insurance plan and a public care option. And as well as for people who want to pay more, they can get access to private, you know, more more private sector amenities, et cetera. Uh, I don't think the U.S. has a great uh, government run option right now, which makes it difficult, especially on the hospital and provider side, things really non-competitive. So that's why if you look at a lot of geographies, they're concentrated to one or two uh, health systems, providers, et cetera, because there's, and, and they basically have pricing power monopoly because, you know, there's, there's really no competition for them. You know, that being said, it's like, I, I think the re- one of the reasons a lot of other countries can do that is because there's a lot of trust in their government and in their public institutions to, to run these effectively. I don't know if the U S has that same level of trust. And it's also worth noting that most of these companies built their healthcare systems at a time where they had some sort of like dictator or faux dictator basically who could just make these calls and and you know get these things built i'm not totally sure in the u.s we have such a you know bipartisan system which has its pros and its cons but you know it, things things just happen way more slowly uh here if we wanted to actually do a massive overhaul like that and, and the only other thing i'll say is you know again a lot of these a lot of these in these other countries it's funded by either higher taxes and on individuals or on businesses. And I think the U S has struggled a lot with that. And then the only other last thing I'll say is that uh, for most countries, a lot of them will actually still do end up sending their complex care uh, patients who have complex care end up coming to the U S for the quote unquote uh, best care. I think the U S does a great job actually, when it comes to really tough uh, disease areas, rare disease areas, et cetera. We really do. I think have some of the best care in the world for things like that. But the trade-off is that for kind of, um, you know, regular care for people, it's extremely, uh, we have a really kind of backward system that's extremely expensive. Yeah. And and I've heard the critique that we basically have like the worst of sort of this hybrid private public uh, sort yeah. of model. And, and maybe Singapore is an example of a country, obviously 
significantly smaller, but that maybe that has some of the best of sort of a private public hybrid. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and actually just to riff off that point, it is worth noting that like, I don't know how many other countries have this geographic spread that we do. I, I think this is sort of kind of an understated point is that a lot of the U.S.'s healthcare issues also stem from the fact that we just have really tough rural health care delivery problems. It's just hard, you know, just think about like this land mass that is the U.S. It's hard to get people in these other, in these kind of hard to reach areas, access to good health care. You know, we have problems basically giving like good, having uh, access to like, groceries and, and food de- and their food food deserts kind of rampant there. So, you know, I, I think the, the, the density slash rural aspect of this is not to be understated. Uh, to, to, to go to the private and public health uh, kind of best of both worlds thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, the problem is like, we have a system that is a currently regular in a lot of in a lot of examples hindered by regulations like by some sort of government opposition i think you know we see this in some parts of tech but i think in healthcare it's very apparent where when you when you add more and more kind of regular like reporting burden or documentation burden or kind of just like things you need for compliance it just sort of ends up favoring large players versus small ones and so it's actually really difficult to start a healthcare business in a lot of areas, especially, for example, in private practice, or anything on the care delivery side, because a combination of regulatory issues, like, for example, there's something called in some states, they have these things called certificate of need laws, where you have to like prove to the state that, uh, you know, you need a new MRI system, because there aren't enough in the in the state, like, that's just so non competitive and so difficult. You know, if, if, for example, uh, you want to take part in some of these uh, new uh, government bundles uh, to take to to get reimbursement in new ways. Like most of these uh, smaller practices, just don't have the ability to do that, and that's kind of why I think over the last ten years or so, you've just seen all of the small medium businesses in most parts of healthcare just kind of get swallowed up by the large ones. So the, the, the on the on the regulatory side, it's, it's become very. I think there's a lot of kind of uh there's a lot of barriers to new entrants coming in and then on the kind of free market capital pure capitalist side i think it's really really tough because a lot of these uh extremely large players have become pseudo monopolies that can just kind of milk the system for everything it's worth and i don't know there's just like so many middleman entities that are just trying as much as possible to like squeeze every penny out of the healthcare system and there's no real competitive force that would kind of force them to price lower or force them to, you know, care about things like uh, customer acquisition or, or normal things in which businesses need, like nor businesses and other industries need to think about. There's just no real competitive forces that that would force them to drive down the price. And so you have this like bad duo of no room for new entrants, no government, no real, like no actual like government negotiating. Like I think in a lot of other countries, you have some sort of government entity who does kind of broad scale negotiating um, of prices for for a lot of entities, you don't really have that in the U.S. And then you also have uh, you know no 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 real competition happening. So you have these players who can kind of just just squeeze as much as much as they can out of the system. So kind of a long rant, but yeah, you know, th- I think there are good ways to do it. There there are ways to do it. <laughs> and, and do you think that you know election year COVID? Like, do you think that now is an opportunity, a likely opportunity that? 
we'll see some real changes. Like, what do you expect our conversation in six months to be? Oh my God. Listen, if it doesn't change now, I don't know when it's going to change. Like, it's this combination of, you have a global pandemic. Healthcare is like, you know, the number two issue for almost, for all voters. Number one is economy, which I don't even count because that's just like life. Uh, So healthcare is almost the number one issue for everybody. You have an election year happening where people are like really trying to find someone who's going to bring serious change to the system. Um, I, I just think it can't go forward the same way it, it is currently. I, I, I wish the U.S. was a little bit better at just experimenting with new models generally. And I think COVID is actually the first time that is like everything's really shaken up and people there's no like default player to turn to anymore on like hey like we have this problem like let's just renew our contract with x and it'll take care of it it's like oh we have like a whole new set of problems now there's no established player that has expertise in this area so we're open to kind of new suggestions and new and new models etc and also you know it's interesting i think Right now, uh, we're running kind of uh, naturally running a lot of parallel experiments anyway. Each state is basically taking a different approach to to how they're handling COVID. Each country is taking a totally different approach. So I think at the end of this, you'll actually have a lot of data to support the, you know, support doubling down on different experiments or initiatives, depending on how uh, different geographies turn out. So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I, you know, on the investing side, at least, I, I look at pre-seed and C-stage companies, and I've just never seen more kind of excitement to build stuff in healthcare or like take advantage of some kind of new openings that have been created thanks to COVID. Or simultaneously, like I've never seen this many non-healthcare people interested in healthcare, which I think is a good barometer of just how, just like the number of smart people that seem to be entering the space right now is so high that I would be shocked if if you didn't see a lot of really exciting companies built, you know, starting today. Let's, uh, let's, let's segue into your, your investing thesis. What are, how do you think about types of companies that you're excited about or, or subspaces or, or things that yeah. are sort of new, newly enabled or empowered it, 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 because of COVID or, or just where we're at right now in 2020? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think it kind of falls into a few buckets. You know, one thing I sort of mentioned is that I think healthcare is sort of lacked these small, medium-sized businesses across different parts of the industry. And I'm really looking for a lot of companies that will, that make it easier to sort of build out uh, small, medium businesses. So really like Shopify for X across healthcare and, and, you know, have, have been looking at a lot of companies that do this for primary care, for different types of specialties, doing it for uh, pharmacies, like anything that sort of enables more competition in the space by making it easier to start up a business is one area that I'm, I'm really kind of bullish on going forward. Um, another area is also just diagnostics generally. I, I, think, I think the way care is delivered today is going to change quite a bit because we're going to move from this reactive healthcare system where you basically feel sick and then you go see a doctor and they do some t- tests, tell you what's wrong. And, you, you know, that's sort, of the, that's sort of V1. I think V2 is we should be alerted uh, before we actually feel symptoms, because that's, you know, in a lot of cases too late, we should be alerted to, to, to when that happens so that someone can reach out to us and say like, Hey, I noticed you're, you know, feel you, you have some abnormal readings, wanted to just sort of check in, et cetera. And so when you sort of change how care is delivered by moving from reactive to proactive, you can build entirely new kind of care delivery pathways and really rethink how, you know, really rethink kind of 
how people should be receiving care. And, you know, that also changes where care is actually delivered, right? Like, I think right now you're seeing so much excitement over things like home care and care delivered in areas that maybe are not traditionally healthcare areas, like, uh, you know, your grocery store, your pharmacy, et cetera. You can actually bring care to new areas if you make the diagnostic tools better. So really excited about the diagnostic space generally. And then um, another area that I'm, I'm, I'm looking, uh, looking more towards is kind of these uh, services as APIs. So really, uh, how do you make it easier to start other healthcare companies just generally? So, um, you know, Truepill, I think, and, and Wheel and a lot of these other companies which are taking these kind of commoditized services and making them so easy that you can kind of just plug them into your whatever your healthcare flow is to uh, for for other digital health companies, um, I think that's that's going to be really uh, exciting going forward, especially as all these new companies are getting built. So, you know, very excited about these kind of enabling companies that will enable new digital health companies to spin up, and also just fraud. I think I think we're like I think we're in the golden age of fraud right now. Like there's there's so much money just sort of floating around that it feels like almost every other day I'm reading about some like billion dollar healthcare fraud that's you know, actually seemingly simple to detect. It's just, you know, it's no one, no one's really done it. So, uh, you know, I think companies that are, that have some fraud specific use case, uh, I'm really interested in. So looking at those buckets broadly, but, you know, honestly, I'm excited about, about so many new things after talking, talking with people that even, even since I wrote kind of wrote out my investing thesis, a lot of that has changed even just in three months. I've, you know, I've never really seen healthcare move this fast. So, you know, it's crazy. Just, I'm getting like whiplash, just like reading new, reading new decks and stuff. Totally. You, you had this tweet around the stages of building a uh, health, health care company is sort of, uh, I think it was the grief, grief. <laughs> I'm trying to remember exactly how, how you break. Six stages of healthcare grief. My, my, you know, my, my faux Sigmund Freud of companies. Exactly. Sort of, and you, it, it sort of, trace this curve of, you know, we can build a platform that connects all healthcare to yeah. let's build the, the, what, 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 I'll have you walk through the, the, the six stages and then sure. uh, on a high level, and then let's get to, you know, each of them one-on-one. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I've, I've just seen so many people go through this process. And I was like, let me just, let me just write these, this, you know, if any of anyone listening has ever read Chris Dixon's original post about the idea maze or, or, you know, a lot of follow-ups to that post, but I think this is sort of the healthcare version of the idea maze where a lot of people, I think, go through a very similar path where they start at, let's pay people to be healthy. And, you know, they're like, the problem with healthcare is that, you know, you can actually save money long-term if you pay people smaller amounts to be healthy behaviors early. That's always where they start. The second becomes, oh, you know, that the problem is actually that uh, there, there aren't any good healthcare databases or electronic medical records. All of them are really old hospital, you know, they're built in like the 90s on like mumps and like all these ancient programming languages, like, you know, patients don't have access or like the ability to give the data wherever they want. Like, that's the problem. We need to fix that. And then everyone's like, Oh, uh, you know, shit, healthcare is really hard. Like I, I, I'm, I'm kind of jaded at this point, yada, yada, yada. And so, uh, now they're like, okay, people won't pay for this personal health record, but all these employers have to handle their employee spend. So why don't we, uh, target the employers and help them manage the, the healthcare of their employees? That's like stage three, stage four, you know, now they're like, wow, healthcare sucks. I'm just not gonna you know, not going to like do, do this anymore. Like why don't I just go do some easier thing? I'll go like 
start a CPG company. No offense to the CPG companies. And then the the phase after that, they're like, okay, 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 let's go, let's get, let's like start incremental. We'll just make one of these existing processes five percent better. We'll just make it a little bit better with software. We'll just like write a few, a few scripts, etc. We can start there. That's like a good wedge that we can go to the bigger problems. And then at a certain point, they realize, oh. The only way that I can either actually like change the healthcare system is by delivering services myself, whether that's like we're going to deliver, uh, you know, we're actually going to deliver care ourselves or we're going to transport goods ourselves, except, or we're going to basically uh, have like a consulting services arm to onboard new, new, uh, new clients and, you know, offer, offer, offer talent ourselves, et cetera. They realize that like, oh, services are actually a really important component of the business. We can't just be like a software company platform. And then that's sort of, that's like the six stages. And, you know, people learn this either within like six months or sometimes six years. So uh, I think I just wanted to write it out because I've heard this enough times at this point. This is what a lot of people think about. So, so let me just lay out the common, you're not the only one to go through this if you go through it. Like what time does this save in the sense of like, for people who learn about this, these stages and understand it, like how does that change their their uh, trajectory? Like what, what mistakes will they avoid? I think for a lot of people, it's like, I, I think the, the main thing is when you start noticing the, the problems outlined actually come up, then you know that like, oh, okay, this is actually like something that has been either tackled before or people have confronted. So there are resources to basically either address this issue or we can kind of keep moving forward and, and, and go through this process, I would say faster, or even in parallel, you know, some people might try to build like consumer and enterprise products now at the same time and just see which one, which layer stick. Or, you know, the part that I would be more excited about is people kind of jumping straight to the services part. I think rather than try and kind of do this like experiment iterate on like uh, small software fixes, et cetera, really try and swing for the fences um, from the outset and, you know, part of this, I think, is where venture investors have to also get a little bit more comfortable with healthcare companies is understanding that, listen, a lot of the big businesses that are built in healthcare in kind of whatever this era of digital health are companies that have a large services component to them. So this post is not only or the series is not only meant to help entrepreneurs kind of navigate these waters. I think it's also meant to make investors a little bit more comfortable with the idea that there, you know, there are going to be businesses that uh, look a little bit more like services companies that are competitive with the existing healthcare system. You know, maybe yeah, it's it's intimidating to like start a new whatever insurer, etc. But that it's actually, I think, one of the best ways to build a big business. So you know, so it, it's trying to sort of, I think, just get entrepreneurs and investors a little bit more on the same page. Totally. One of the things you, you wrote about in your investment thesis post is uh, unbundling of, of hospitals. Mm-hmm. And you also wrote a separate piece about how sort of nonprofit hospitals are the most, you know, profitable, um, profitable <laughs> enterprises. Why, why don't you talk about sort of both of those uh, dynamics and sure. shed some light on them? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. It's like, I, I think everyone likes to yell at different entities in healthcare, but the people that have like slid I think most under the radar over the last 10 years are hospitals who have basically just been buying up all the smaller hospitals in their areas and kind of building these uh, local uh, local monopolies, essentially, which let them price kind of whatever they want. So, you know, I think they're, and if you look at like where the cost of healthcare is, it's all, most of it is actually our services and, and delivery of healthcare. So, 
you know, it's if we want to if we want to decrease healthcare spend in the country, one thing we really do have to look at is how is care delivered and why is it so expensive? How we do it, and one one of like many aspects of that is that hospitals have just gotten extremely big and non-competitive in a lot of these geographies. Um, and one thing that's like one interesting dynamic is that a lot of these hospitals are quote unquote nonprofits, and what that you know what that sort of means in reality is that a lot of these hospitals actually they just reinvest a lot of the capital that they have into expansion new buildings etc and also a lot of them use their nonprofit status to get access to way better uh interest loans to to finance a lot of this also so you know the the thing and i think you actually there's a lot of parallels to be drawn with college today too where you have a lot of these universities etc who spent a lot of money on these high capex parts of their business, like new buildings, facilities, new, new machines, et cetera, all that kind of stuff. And now they still have to pay uh, pay for that kind of stuff. But to do it, basically, they're just kind of building bigger and bigger so that they become one of the only players in town. And, and the demand is sort of inelastic from the consumer side where, you know, let's say you're in, I don't know, like Ohio, like if someone told you Cleveland Clinic is not in your network, you, you're probably not going to choose that plan. So now you kind of have this like very inelastic demand from the consumer side. And so hospitals know they can take advantage of that to sort of um, do, do do what they want, essentially. Um, And that's not to say that like, just to caveat this, like hospitals and teaching hospitals, especially they provide a lot of valuable public stuff. So teaching research, all this kind of stuff, which like maybe would get kind of lost in a totally for-profit version of the business. So I don't want to say that it's like all negative, but I think a lot of hospitals abuse parts of their nonprofit status to to basically become uh, massive players in their geographies. And so one of the things I'm looking to invest in is if you were to think about how hospital networks get unbundled, what does it look like? And uh, that can be unbundling different service lines from the hospital itself. There, you know, hospitals treat a lot of different diseases. What would happen if you built a you know full disease? care delivery system outside of the hospital? Um, how do you, how would you make it easier for, for physicians who are high value to leave a hospital if they wanted? Um, how could you make, um, for example, how could you make more um, uh, uh, national provider networks um, so that instead of only competing with your local geography, hospitals were forced to compete across the rest of the U.S. So there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of, I think, wedges and angles to making, uh, unbundling the hospital, but I just think it has to happen if we actually want healthcare prices to come down. Totally. Are you seeing startups tar- target college students in really interesting, interesting ways? Or, or is there a sort of a request for startups as it relates to the college opportunity? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I think for college, the real big thing is, is me- mental health. It's not, you know, I think, I think it's not even, it's not like a wishy-washy, check the box thing anymore for a lot of colleges where they feel like they want to have to do the bare minimum for college students. Like a lot of them are actually investing very seriously in mental health or working with uh, mental health companies to provide, um, you know, to basically provide services to their students. So I think mental health is definitely one, but I've always been a believer that really um, college students are just a very strange population of people that leave the geography for their parents in a lot of cases are actually going through a lot of unique healthcare struggles because it's their first time kind of leaving home, whether that's mental health issues. It's also like, uh, you know, 
uh, infectious disease broadly. Um, there are a lot of you know partic- college particular healthcare issues that I think make it actually a really interesting place to start a relationship. I'm, I mean, I, I've sort of talked about this in the post I wrote, but you know, a lot of tech companies have figured out that if you target college students with really cheap versions of their products, they become really sticky over time because they kind of build their own preferences. They have like a history within the product, et cetera. And healthcare companies have sort of just completely ignored this for the most part. And I understand why, you know, college students also don't pay a ton out of pocket and um, working with college health insurance plans has been like historically a nightmare. But right now I think you have the first real, like a first, a real wedge happening because first of all, a lot of students are at home. So now you need to be able to offer health services uh, outside of your campus. And then two, with right now, there's like a lot more loosening of being able to practice across state borders. So doctors in one state can don't need to get a license to practice in another state. And that makes it easier to have like a, you know, basically keep a continuous relationship with a college student from while they're with their parents to when they transition to college to when they transition out of college. So you can actually build longer lasting relationships with these college students through that transition period in their life. I, I, I think college is sort of, um, it, it's one of those times where most people don't really think about their healthcare. I mean, you're young and healthy. It's not something you, I think, spend a lot of time thinking about. But for the first time, you know, people, you know, students are basically getting tested all the time. Like healthcare is a very um, regular part of their lives. So you can actually use that as a wedge, I think, to, to build better healthcare relationships with these students, even beyond just COVID testing. So, you know, I, I'd be curious to see companies better think about college as a potential opportunity. One of the, 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 the topics that you, you weighed in on was, was randomized control trials, partly inspired by the beef that, that Keither Boy and, and um, Zach Weinberg had. I was just curious if, if you perhaps are trying to make healthcare more accessible by starting beefs of your own um, <laughs> any, anytime soon. Um, most people were excited about the beef, but didn't really understand the, the, the topics on, on underlying it. Um, why don't you shed light on, 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 on sort of the two sides of the, the debate, depersonalizing the, the beef a little bit, but just what, what were the perspectives yeah. and, and what merits people have? Yeah. So I'm, I'm really looking for the, the Tupac to my biggie in the healthcare war. So like if anyone wants <laughs> to start that beef, I'm totally down. Um, but, uh, you know, you better come, come with it. So, I mean, the, 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 the premise behind said internet beef was, was just the, the concept of randomized control trials. Like, why do we do them? Why, why are they sort of considered the gold standard to test new therapies and new drugs, new um, medical devices, et cetera, versus why don't we just, you know, release these things into the wild and then kind of see how, assuming that they're safe, of course, but release them into the wild and see if they perform well and then uh, take that evidence from the real world application of them and then decide uh, basically if they uh, you know, if they are, are, are better than whatever the normal treatment is. And, and, and this is actually, you know, I think the, 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 the internet version of this got into like a lot of uh, extremism, but this has been a debate for a pretty long time. It's not, it's not something new. It's, you know, randomized control trials, which is when a, you have a control arm. So, you know, for most people who I think took science in high school, they probably remember this, but it's just like, you have something that's a control arm, you have something that's an experimental arm, uh, and the people in the control arm basically shouldn't know that they're getting, if they're getting the treatment or not. Uh, and the people who are giving it to the patients shouldn't know if they're getting the treatment or not. Um, and that way you have a double blind. And, and the reason this is important is because 
In the real world, if a doctor, for example, thinks you're really sick, they might be more likely to prescribe you the experimental treatment because you know what it, it you know you're 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 sicker, so it's probably worth worthwhile trying, and that that skews the results because then what happens is you have really way sicker patients getting the treatment, so they're going to look like they improved way more because they started from a baseline that was much sicker. So you need to blind to have a truly um, you know truly kind of optimal trial design. You need to have everyone be blind. You need to have it totally random in both buckets to ensure that uh, there, there are all kinds of people that you're testing it on and, and you can compare them. The, 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 problem, the thing is that like, that's all theoretical. In, in the, real, the reality of the situation is that it's very hard to get perfectly randomized buckets. It's very hard to recruit enough people into a lot of these trials to test with large enough sample size. You know, a lot of people talk about how clinical trials, they a lot of times don't recruit enough patients just to even run the trial at all. And a lot of the big reason to that is because you have to recruit to two arms and those two arms have to be very specific in terms of the kinds of people that they recruit and you want a diversity of participants and that can be really hard to get. So, you know, the, the, the theoretical, um, things that make a randomized controlled trial great are also the things that make it so hard to run in the, in practicality. So the opposite of this is basically using more data from the real world to um, inform decisions on whether something works or not. And the problem with that is obviously the inverse of everything I just said, where, uh, you know, physicians have their own bias on the kinds of things that they give to people and uh, things are, you know, you, you could also just see a lot of patients who, uh, you know, maybe maybe are 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 uh, more willing to try it because it's a it's kind of their last ditch effort, etc. So, you know, you you, you really you, you, but but the benefits of having a real world trial are that you can get a much larger sample size, way easier to sort of uh, enroll patients, and so there, there's some best of both worlds here. And actually, if you look across different uh, therapeutic areas or disease areas, etc., there's like different kind of this, like, they, they line, they, they kind of lay on different uh, parts of the spectrum of like how willing are they to maybe use a control trial to answer some questions and then a real world trial to answer others. So, you know, I, my general rule of thumb is for diseases where there are less treatments on the market already and the downside of those diseases is really high, you're probably more likely to get the drug to market as quickly as possible and then see how it works in the real world. But for area, you know, I think the COVID vaccine is probably a good example, actually, where, uh, you know, the the vaccine is going to be distributed basically to everybody. So the bar that we need to set for what we're comfortable with um, and how it impacts people has to be really high because the potential downside impact on at that scale is so, so devastating if it goes wrong that like we do, we really do need to like run good, randomized control trials to ensure at least safety. And then, you know, if we want to test things like efficacy, um, you know, they're different. They're sort of, they're a lot of these um, companies are trying different versions to test that, but you, you, the bar for, for the vaccine has to be really high just because of how devastating the downside effects can be. Um, so anyway, I, 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 I think there's a lot of nuance to this argument that gets lost when you try and, you know, talk, talk shit on the internet, but I think the, the general debate between large real-world evidence trials versus you know very well-designed randomized control trials is is sort of like as long as time itself, basically. Maybe you're the uh, the kumbaya 
you know, leader that, that this beef needs. I know exactly. I gotta, I'm, I'm trying to unite the sides to <laughs> science. Another thing you, you, you've written quite a bit about is, is digital therapeutics. And I'm curious how you approach that as a, as an investor, but also just as a, as a, as someone analyzing and observing the, the, the space, how you sort of make sense of the excitement there. Yeah, I think that after I wrote my thing on digital therapeutics, I think I got the most most beef started at that point. So uh, that's always always my always my favorite topic. Um, I, I don't know, man. Like digital therapeutics is kind of I think the definition keeps changing. I think people focus too much on the definition. I don't think the definition really matters that much. I think, but um, personally, I, I know a lot of other people disagree with me. It's it's really can you use software to achieve some outcome that looks similar to a drug or has a really defined thing that's measuring that it can impact. So if you're trying to monitor things like weight loss or, you know, A1C levels or cardiovascular risk or whatever, if you can use software to nudge people to uh, get people to, to do these things, great. Like you have, you have sort of like a, something that looks sort of like a drug. I think the problem is like a lot of these digital therapeutics companies, a lot of them kind of look like telemedicine companies and they kind of just look like apps. And I, I think the reason people try to turn them into like drugs, like make them look like drugs is because they're trying to retrofit into this old system where, um, you know, they get prescribed and they, they make a ton of money because, uh, you know, because they can charge way more. And, you know, I, I'm in the camp of this is all stems out of a pricing of like how we reimburse things problem. If we reimburse these things so that we reimburse it closer to what the outcome they're trying to achieve is, you would see, uh, you know, you you would see them basically look more like an in between or like a telemedicine company and and not really worry too much about how they're defining themselves. Um, you know, there's a lot more nuance to it. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff with how these digital therapeutic trial designs work. Um, I think there's a lot of a lot of you know open questions on. Um, you know, how should digital therapeutics basically be evaluated in the real world? Like how should their software updates work if they, you know, drugs stay relatively standard when they enter the real world, this software doesn't, it changes, it gets updated. Like how should we be evaluating that? So I, I think there's a lot of nuance to the digital therapeutics topic, which like, yeah, I encourage everyone to go read the post and then come hit me up and I'm happy to, you know, start more beef. Um, but, but I, I, I think, I think it's just like a topic where people get so hooked up on the definition rather than the fact that this is actually a pro- this is like a very indicative problem of how like poor pricing in the U S works that, you know, I, 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 I think, I think we, we're losing sight of the issue really. Totally. Let's go back to EMRs for, for a second or EHRs. Are, are you unlikely to invest in, in companies trying to, to innovate there? Or how do you, how do you sort of look at the, look at the space? Yeah. I don't know. I struggle with this one a lot. Um, I, I would have said that if you try to start a new EMR company that you were probably dead on the water. And I still sort of believe that if you're trying to go head to head with like if Epic or eClinical Works or any of the large players, you know, you're probably not going to do too high. That being said, I think there's kind of some interesting wedges that are popping up now. I think for one, there are companies that are basically like picking really specific for us, so there are companies who are working in like the cash pay space, for example, or the Medicare space, where because they don't have like the same rules around how uh, billing works, they can build their EMRs di- very differently. So companies 
I don't think it's a standalone company per se. I think this is probably just like uh, a feature or a product within larger companies. So like, you know, companies like Iora, which are Medicare Advantage primary care companies are building their own EMR because they can build something that looks very different from the ground up. Or I'm sure a lot of these cash pay pharmacies are building their own versions of EMRs that also look very different. So you're picking a wedge that looks different in terms of how billing works. And that's one way I would say I would be interested. The second is there are a lot of, um, you know, for people that don't know, the you can, as a patient, you can request your health records whenever you want, really. Um, and you can give access and authorization to whoever whoever you'd like. The problem is that it takes a really long time in a lot of cases to like get access to all of your records. Um, a lot of, you know, for a lot of times they're not standardized the same way. And it's hard to like push that data to another um, service provider. One of the things that is changing is there is some regulations kind of being passed and um, implemented over the next few years to make these systems more interoperable. And what that means is like a lot of these EMRs have to keep their records in a sort of standardized data format so that when patients request it, it's kind of um, easy to move from point A to point B because it's all in one standard. Um, again, some more nuance to that, but there's never been a better time to try and build a patient-initiated data exchange. So me saying like, hey, I want my data and I want to be able to move it to whoever I want to. Uh, if you find interesting use cases for that, I think, uh, you know, I think you basically can, you can build a really interesting business that's a little bit more patient focused and gives them the agency to take their data wherever they want. It's funny. I was actually I actually got a COVID test I think like two days ago, and one part of the COVID test is that um, they give your health records through your an EMR portal, and so if you want to see a result, you have to like log into the EMR, or set up your EMR password, etc., and like go check it. I don't think there are that many times of life where I've ever had to like log into my EMR. Um, I just don't see the doctor that much. So, but now with co-testing, with a lot of these things force people to open their EMR, I mean, regularly, depending on, I guess, where test results are being displayed, you have people who actually have to know their EMR credentials and like know their login and actually interact with their personal health records. So it's kind of like one of the few times where I've ever been like, huh, this is interesting. Maybe people will actually wants to see their health records frequently going forward. And I don't think I would have said that at any point pre-pandemic. So that's actually, I think, one thing that has changed for me is I think COVID has actually provided a wedge where people want to look at their health records a little bit more regularly. Talk about the the blog post you, you wrote, should social determinants come from payers and providers? What were you trying to get across there? Yeah, so again, for people that don't know, social determinants are kind of all the non-healthcare stuff that contributes to your health. So your housing, your food insecurity, job security, all the things that kind of make it difficult for you to either access care or impacts your care down the line, et cetera. And, and the, the trope has always been like, oh, like we should be caring more about social determinants. And like, that's actually like the you know best way to kind of combat disease down the line. And I don't actually disagree with any of that. But the, the problem is we're now relying on healthcare companies to kind of do this. So we want hospitals to get more involved in housing and food security. We want insurers to get more involved in these things. This is one of those things where it like sounds good in theory, and then we think about it more practically. There's a lot of questions that come up where it's like, okay, how do they determine who gets these, you know, effectively social safety net, social safety net benefits? 
what happens if you become less sick? Does that mean that they'll stop investing in those things for you? Is that going to incentivize people to like seem sicker than they are? I, I think it really, the question is just, uh, that I think we struggle with as, as an American society, and I think really it gets manifested in healthcare, is where do we want private enterprise to basically be in charge of providing social safety net benefits, and where do we want the government to be doing that? And so, you know, you can see a world in which someone who is a high spender in healthcare uh, now, you know, have these insurance companies basically focusing a ton of, you know, resources into keeping them healthy, but at the same time, it's like, First of all, who's making those decisions on who's the quote-unquote sickest person uh, is one. Two, what happens if they become less sick? And then three also is, I, I don't know, I, I, I'm generally in the camp that health insurers and hospitals are not like good operators and like can barely run their own businesses for the most part. I don't know if I'd be super stoked for them to be running, you know, housing operations and meal kits and all that kind of stuff. I think it'll be, I think that's way harder than they think. That being said, you know, I'm glad there's any money going into this because we can learn which interventions are most effective. Like if we discover, um, if we discover that just investing in uh, better grocery stores and food deserts actually has the highest level of public health impact, then maybe in the future we can, as a government or as a society, invest more in that independent of like the private enterprise. But I, I just think it's a lot of questions we haven't thought too deeply about and we're kind of just letting letting, you know, hospitals, insurers, and everyone kind of get more deeply involved in social safety benefits without thinking about what the second order effects are. Talk, talk about how, how you see sort of the current state of, of telemedicine and what questions you still have in the space or what you expect to perhaps see going forward. Yeah, I uh, I wish I had like an answer. I feel like by the time this podcast comes out, I'm going to have a completely different answer to this question. I, you know, my th- I, I think I think it's I think telemedicine is you know super exciting. My general theory on telemedicine has just been that like it's a feature; it's not its own business for the most part. Um, and you know, in a lot of cases, I've been proven totally wrong about that. I mean, Teladoc is built in its incredibly good business based on just telemedicine. So, you know, that, that sort of like opinion of mine that kind of changes up and down. I'm out of the camp that telemedicine is great, but our version of telemedicine we have today is just how do we take the face-to-face visit and put it onto a video? And not really that effective at changing anything. I mean, it's not like doctors can see more patients that way or anything. So what I, what I really want to see more of is companies that build more uh, native telemedicine workflows so that basically instead of just taking the existing physical visits that we have today and porting them over, we see something that looks more native. So Livongo is a good example where, you know, I was talking a little bit earlier about the proactive healthcare workflows, but if you see someone's glucose sort of spiking all over the place and, and want to like understand why you can now proactively reach out to them, send them some nudges, et cetera. And, and that is a very different workflow than what, traditional uh, face-to-face visit would basically try and do. So I, I'm looking for more companies that um, are building natively into telemedicine and, 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 and really kind of shift what, what care looks like by making telemedicine like a very core part of it. So I, I don't know, my, my, my theory, on, my thesis on this is still sort of evolving. Um, ask me again in like two weeks and I'm sure I'll have a different answer for you. Gearing towards closing here, our mutual friend uh, Ambar from from Maverick asked me to ask you. He said, "If you had a hundred dollars <laughs> uh, and five healthcare startups to pick from, 
uh, what, what would you pick? And then we could see how that answer ages over, over time, he said. Uh, like, what are some companies we're particularly excited about now? Yeah, I mean, I have less than $100, so this is a tough question for me. <laughs> no, I, it, so I, I think the places I'm most bullish on right now, I am really interested in the cash space space generally. I think companies like GoodRx are really understated as a company. They have gotten physicians on board to love them. Patients love them. They take advantage of this like really weird blip in healthcare, which like cash pay uh, is actually you know relatively competitive space. And so, so I think companies like GoodRx and, and people that play the cash based space, like I'm very interested in that. The the, the second area which I would probably a second company or whatever area that I would probably put money in is I, you know, I think that, I think that there's still a lot more to be done on the food aspect of healthcare. I, I can't think of a, a company that comes to mind immediately. Um, but that's, I've seen a few pitches now for this. And I'm, I think it's really, I think it is really interesting of, of how do you, better tailor meals to uh, patients who are at risk for some sort of dietary specific dietary specific issue. So, uh, you know, any, anything that's sort of targeting food as medicine, I think is, is, is really interesting to me. A third company I would probably be interested slash long on is I think companies like butterfly that are, are doing butterfly, which is a portable ultrasound company companies that are really like building this kind of totally new, point of care diagnostic tools, I think are going to be a very integral part of the future of healthcare, especially in areas like rural areas where access to some of these more expensive machines is a, is really inhibiting. And I think these cheaper diagnostic tools and cheaper kind of equipment is going to be one of the things that enables cheaper practices and hospitals to be built. So companies like Butterfly may want to kind of build it, especially in the imaging side of things, just generally like the, the stuff that's happening in machine vision right now for in terms of what it can detect versus traditional specialists, um, you know, it's gotten, it's gotten really good. So you know, very impressed with all the kind of imaging stuff that's happening. I think butterfly sort of encompasses a lot of that. Um, so those three areas that I'm interested in, oh man, five, this is tough. You know, I feel like I'm, 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 I'm my, my ideas of this change constantly. I think in general companies that are, I don't know if I can like pick a large tech giant just because this is kind of a cop out, but um, I think what Apple's doing for personal health records is still super interesting. I think, um, you know, their stance on kind of patient privacy and, and making it easier for our patients to be able to retrieve their records and kind of port it over to a sort of app store like marketplace, I think will look really smart down the road um especially as they build their own devices so you know to be a, to be safe and like make sure my portfolio doesn't get crushed over the you know 10 year time spent probably put some some money there um and then man last one is tough i think an area that i i am excited by I, i'm trying to think of one that's a little bit more esoteric that, that might be but might be different but you know i actually think a lot of these public health companies this would be like my uh, a, a weirder bet, but I, I think a lot of these public health companies are finally getting some shine. So like companies like Biobot, which are using sewage systems to basically detect disease outbreaks in different areas. I have no relation to this company also, but I, I think I think for the first time, states and cities are trying to allocate budget 
you're deploying these companies for COVID reasons. And you can see how they would expand into new disease areas once the kind of infrastructure is already deployed. So it would be really interesting to see if they can, if, first of all, if public health budgets kind of stay high post-COVID in response to COVID. And if companies, if companies like BioBot can ride that wave and basically uh, uh, expand into new disease areas and, and research. So th- those would be my, my five. I don't, I'd probably go 90% Apple, 10% everything else. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, be safe. Just kidding. What, is there anything worth mentioning on, on uh, Apple or Amazon or, or something you, you expect to be you know, very different in the next year or two about how some of these tech incumbents work in, work, work in healthcare? I, I, you know, it's kind of interesting to see a lot of them, well, Amazon specifically kind of moving into areas like primary care. And, you know, I am always just blown away by the idea that Amazon can like deliver something to me the next day. And I feel like in healthcare, you know, Amazon Prime is amazing because, you know, at first it was like two days. And you think about all the, all the possibilities that are okay, two days delivery. So we move to one day and same day delivery. I think a lot of the healthcare opportunities really start opening up because for a lot of people, they don't want to wait two days, but they can wait one or one day or less if it's really convenient for them. And I think we haven't really seen Amazon take advantage of that yet, but I would, you know, I would be interested. And, and also, you know, they also now have a kind of real world presence with Whole Foods and, and, and it seems like they're just experimenting with a lot of stuff. Um, I'm, I'm really interested actually to see what they do. I have, I have no, like, I have no real, real guesses on where they're going, but it's just cool to see a lot of, to see someone like Amazon experimenting a lot in the healthcare space. Very cool to see Google put out all of these really impressive papers on the machine learning front about, about disease detection and, 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 and a lot of the, a lot of the stuff they've been putting out. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm excited that, you know, tech company, large tech companies are at least entering the space and getting, you know, hospitals, insurers, large incumbents, like worried, whatever. I, I think they need to, they need to make something splashy happen because I think uh, the buzz of like three years of them saying they're going to enter the space without like any huge announcements is now starting to wane away. So, you know, I'm hoping, I'm hoping they, they do something big soon. Nikhil, this has been a great episode. If people want to go deeper, they should absolutely check out your out-of-pocket newsletter. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And any plugs you want to leave us with in terms of what, what to expect going forward? Yeah, totally. You, you sign up for my newsletter. I know everyone has one, but mine is good. Don't worry. Uh, it's outofpocket.health. Uh, you should, if you are into clinical trials or healthcare or know someone that is, you should check out my book. If you give a mouse metformin, uh, it's on Amazon uh, and and. You know, if you're, if you're ever interested in learning more about how healthcare works or just want to jam about stuff, I'm always open. I'm trying to try to answer every message that comes my way. So just find me on Twitter at Nikhilinit and happy to chat. Awesome. Uh, Nikhil, thanks so much for coming to the podcast. It's been a great episode. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.